Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to open God's word with you today. If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church, and we welcome you. We're in the middle of a series on worship, and it's a custom at the outset to always do a little bit of review of everything that um, we've covered in the series, sort of give you a you are here arrow in the series. That's especially appropriate when we're dealing with a message like today, and even picking up on some of the material last week, because we're going to be talking today from Hebrews chapter 12, and I invite you to turn over there, whether you have that Bible on an app or a print version, you can certainly follow along with the scripture readings on the screen. But in Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning, dealing with the subject of acceptable worship. And and the reason I want to just say a couple of prefatory comments is whenever you start talking about acceptable or unacceptable worship, Um, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Christians, some Christians, some, none here, um, none of them, uh, tend to, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, they tend to be a little critical. Some of them call it discernment and um, try to sanctify it. Uh, But really what can happen is when you do a series on worship, when you do a series on worship, you can produce worship critics. And that is not what we're after at all. Uh, we need to remember, as we've, I hope we're learning, that worship is the gift of God to us before it is ever an offering we make to him. Let my people go that they may worship me. God doesn't need worship. He stands in need of nothing. And so communion with him is what we need. And this is true because he is, to use an old Latin phrase, our sumum bonum, our highest good. And when we are not in our hearts at rest in him, as Augustine pointed out long ago, then our hearts remain restless. Our hearts were made for you, Augustine said. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the essence of idolatry. Idolatry means we, instead of worshiping the creator, begin to worship the creature. We, the creature. We, we turn in the glory of God for the the lesser splendors of the created order. And our hearts are pulled and distracted in all kinds of directions away from him. And so we substitute wealth, we substitute power, we substitute sex, we substitute whatever we think can give us fulfillment in this life, the true meaning of our existence, achievement, you name it, line it up and believe that that will in and of itself bring us to a place of fulfillment when in fact we were made for communion with God. And so God, by his grace, brings us into communion with him. And that's not just personal, it's congregational. And that's one of the other things we've been looking at, that God has not only brought us out of the tyranny of sin into communion with him, but he calls us together as his people and says every single one of us are priestly people. Every single one of us have been given access to the holy of holies in heaven itself. The, the call to worship this morning uh, for, was for Hebrews, I'll just repeat it again because only about 17 people were here for the call to worship, that's a different issue, but. Um, <laughs> and uh, in, <laughs> no condemnation, just shame. Okay, all right, there you go. Um, in, <laughs> in, in the book of Hebrews, it, it says let us, let us draw near, let us come with boldness to the throne of grace. How many glad it's a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment? 
Draw near to the throne of grace for grace and mercy to help in your time of need. We are given access into the throne room of God. The very same voice that came to John on the Isle of Patmos saying, come up here, is speaking to us today, saying, come up in to this throne room. And so we've been learning that as priestly people, we're given that access and we come into the throne room of the Almighty. Now here in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 22, we, and I want you to especially notice the tense of this, we have the writer of Hebrews who is dealing with a whole community of people who are tempted to just go back to seeing worship as something that is in a building, it's in a temple or a sanctuary that, that people have made. He's trying to get them to remember that they, are, they have access into the sanctuary that no human has made but God himself inhabits, that he has made, he gives us access into heaven itself. Christ died, not simply so you could go to heaven when you die, but so you could go to heaven every day. And you and I, as a community of people, through the blood of Christ, draw near to God in that heavenly place. So Hebrews 12, look at verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now let me just stop right there in the reading. Um, notice he doesn't say you will go to Mount Zion, you will go to the city of God. He says what, you have come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And he goes on to describe who is here with us in the city of God, in the sacred assembly. He says, to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the church or the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I'll just stop there. When we gather together as a community of people, we ascend into heaven in worship, we come into the heavenly city, we're surrounded by holy angels, and you're looking around going, well, I don't see them. You may not see the, all the holy angels, and they're not the people sitting next to you. Um, that should be evident. But they are here with us. In fact, it would be better to say we are there with them. And we are gathered with all of the believers who have gone before us. They are worshiping. The, the, all, those, all the believers that you know, people that you know and love, who are already the spirits of the righteous made perfect, you remember them as imperfect people. But now they are perfect around the throne of grace and we gather with them right now. One day, one day in the future, we will never have to leave that place. But right now, we come up into that place in worship and we gather with them, with all the angels, and then it says, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. More on that in a moment. Verse 28, therefore, therefore, because we're in heaven, we're with all the holy angels, we're with everybody who's gone ahead of us, we're standing before the throne, and there is Christ on the throne, the lamb at the center of the throne. Remember, this is our priority. Worship is a priority because it re-centers our whole existence, it re-centers the universe. It's about Jesus. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, out of that gratitude, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the author of Hebrews to pen these words would
write them across the tablets of our soul so that we may know your word and walk in your ways. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. God's presence, God's presence is our heart's greatest need. It is our soul's chief desire. The psalmist said, one day in your presence is better than a thousand anywhere else. And friends, today we are reminded that we are called as a people to join with the angels, join with everyone who's gone before us around the throne of grace and savor, not rush through, savor the presence of God with us, the feast that he offers us. Human beings showed up on the planet in the narrative of scripture as hungry people, hungry God said, you see everything around you, all of this has been made for you. You are hungry, you can eat. Everything, just don't eat over here. And of course, that's exactly the restaurant they went to. And so the undoing of creation, the undoing of our souls and our, our lives was through that act of high treason, eating. But how does God rescue us? Jesus comes and establishes a feast. And he breaks the bread and he pours the wine and he says, take and eat, take and eat. And he establishes the new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant through his blood. And he begins to feed us. He begins to nourish us. And he's taking us towards ultimately what's called, and this is the end of history, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where that's why worship, friends, is not a lecture hall where it's just information that's being given out. It's not a music hall where it's just music, it's just song. It is, in fact, a banquet hall where we are together in a feast in Mount Zion. This is the worship of heaven. We gather with the angels and with everybody who's gone ahead of us, and we gather with them through what Christ has done. And there in his presence, we find our hearts, which are so distracted, so filled with idols. John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories that never shut down. We keep making them. This is why the commandments that are given to Israel, when they come out of Egypt, let my people go that they may come and worship me. They come out, they get to Mount Sinai, and they're given these words. And the very first words have to do with our relationship with God. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. The second one says, because he's the Lord our God, don't make any images of things in heaven or on earth and so on and worship them. The, the first commandment, I'm the Lord your God, don't worship any other gods, has to do with worshiping truly false gods. We ascribe to false gods our true worship. The second commandment, don't make any images and worship me through the images, has to do with worshiping the true God falsely. Where we think that we can just come up with whatever we want, the product of our own hands, and say, well, Lord, surely this is fine. The very first thing that they did to do that was create a golden calf and dance around it. That didn't go well. That didn't end well for the makers of the golden calf. And they didn't say the golden calf is another God. They said, here's how we will worship the God who brought us out of Egypt. So they created a golden calf and they said, via that calf, we're going to worship God. And so what continually happens in the scripture is that God is worshiped unacceptably. And that's why the author here says, let us worship God acceptably. 
Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's talk about unacceptable worship for just a moment. Because if there's acceptable worship in heaven, there's certainly such a thing as unacceptable worship. And that may be a stunning thought to us that God might look upon some act of worship and go, no, 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 no. Don't bring that in here. But in fact, that's something that happens over and over again in the scriptures. In fact, in Malachi 1 verse 10, listen to this. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. How about that? You imagine God saying, I just wish one of you folks would just close the church. You might go, whoa, 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 what? Yeah. Now, what is it that would lead the Lord to say, this just needs to stop. We have to stop meeting like this. What would bring that about? Well, let me give you a few things that over and over again occur in the scripture. Here's the first one, heartless worship, heartless worship. In Isaiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 13, the scriptures say this, because you draw near to me with your lips, but you remove your heart far from me, okay? Lips, but no heart. And your worship of me consists of tradition learned by rote. Whoa. In other words, you're just going through the motion. And if you're thinking right now, if you're thinking right now, oh, I know a church, I, I know a church, I grew up in a church like that, it was just rote. We just said the same thing over and over again every single Sunday, and so I know, yeah, that must be what he's talking about. Oh, okay, worship critic, hang on just a second. Let me just remind you that every church has traditions, every church has a way of doing things, and you can just go through the motions. And you can just get through it and you can remove your heart. You're not thinking about the Lord, you're not, a, you're not walking with God in it, you're just kind of going through it. And that's it. You draw near to me with your lips, but you remove your heart far from me. And then he goes on to say, I will pour over you a spirit of deep sleep. The church goes to sleep. Why? Because its worship is heartless. It's not moved from the heart. It's not moved from the soul. So I'll give you a spirit of deep sleep. That's come upon some of you already this morning, okay? It's a gift that God gives to some people. It's okay, it's all right. Some of you may need a nap, it's all right. Just consider me your servant in these things, all right? I will pour over you a spirit of deep sleep. You've been in there, you've been in a church where it feels like the church is just asleep. And he says, I will close the eyes of your seers and shut the mouths of your prophet. And when somebody says, open the word and help me understand it, no one will be able to do it. That's what happens in a church when it just goes through the motions. It goes to sleep, it dies. But when people are awakened to the glory of who God is and they begin to go, Lord, this is who you are, and they begin to respond from their hearts in worship, then far from being heartless, it's full of his grace and mercy. And my friends, this isn't just related to God, it's related to other people too. Everybody knows Isaiah 118, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Come now, let us reason together. That text, but everybody misses the first part, Isaiah 12 through 17, because the heart issue isn't just in relationship to God, it's in relationship to one another. When you, this is Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1, 12 to 17, for those of you taking notes, both of you. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Don't bring your offerings anymore to me. They're an abomination to me. Everything that you're doing, I just can't endure it anymore. I'm weary of bearing this. When you spread out your hands, I'll turn my eyes away from you. Why? Why? 
Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. In other words, you're coming to worship and you think that worship is only about your relationship with God, but it doesn't have anything to do with your relationship to other people, especially people who are downtrodden, people who are marginalized, people who are oppressed. You know, you think you can say, I love God and hate my brother. And you go, that's just wokeism. No, that's Isaiah. That's, and it's all over the scripture. Well, listen, listen, let me get down in the weeds on this one because this will be fun. This... This is very clear in scripture. In 1 John chapter four, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't love, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot possibly love God who he's never seen. And then listen to this. You husbands, it says. Oh, here we go. And and let me just say right now, okay. Elbows up and in the locked position, okay. You husbands, you husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, granting her honor, honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers are not hindered. In other words, you treat your wife poorly, dishonorably, disrespectfully. Your prayers, when you pray them, are going as far as the ceiling and bouncing right back. So yes, how we treat other people how we care for other people impacts how God views worship. The worship of heaven is marked by love. The worship of Zion is marked by hearts that are engaged, not just vertically, but also horizontally. I'll give you another form of worship that is unacceptable. It's mindless, mindless worship. You see, Jesus said we have to worship in John chapter four in spirit and in truth. Truth. So worship has to be something which opens up the truth of God, the scriptures. The Corinthian catastrophe was that they had a form of mysticism that disengaged from pondering the truth and considering the truth in intelligent ways. And so the scriptures must always be something that we're opening up and learning and following after the Lord. That doesn't mean that we get every answer that we want. The task of the Christian faith is not to give easy answers to hard questions. What you will find if you follow Jesus is you will have more questions and the answers will be more difficult and you will understand more and more that God is not so much the subject of of your study as he is the cause of your wonder. That you are being led to a place of mystery, but that's the truth. The truth is you will be caught up in God's great glory. But then there's also faithless worship. Worship which is done without faith, with an unbelieving heart. You'll notice here that he talked about Cain and Abel. He said that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And, and, and in, this, in this text of faithlessness, we need to remember that the very first time you run into worship in the Bible, it's Cain and Abel. It's two people together, two brothers, they're together. But Cain's heart was murderous. And they came and they, they brought their, their offering to the Lord. Cain and Abel did. God accepted Abel's offering. They did not accept Cain's offering. Cain's heart was unbelieving. Esau, also, evil, unbelieving heart, going through the motions. God accepted Abel's worship. Cain's worship was unacceptable. Cain then murdered his brother. He murdered him. 
He slew him. And in fact, in 1 John, the word that's used for the murder of Abel is this word that describes carving up a sacrifice. In other words, in other words, Cain said, God, you want a sacrifice? I'll give you a sacrifice. Here he is. Here he is. And he killed him. But the true worship of God, the faithful worship of God, restores relationships. And it brings us into communion with him. That's what faith looks like. Faith is resting in what God has done through Jesus. And Jesus' blood speaks better things. And that's what makes our worship acceptable. What is it that makes worship then acceptable? What is it that creates in us reverence and awe? It is this. Hebrews chapter 12 You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to multitudes of angels, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come there to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to his sprinkled blood, which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Better things. What did Abel's blood cry out for? You see, the ground is an amplifier. The earth is an amplifier. And all through the Bible, it cries out. It cries out from what's happening in the earth. Cities cry out. The land cries out. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up before me, God said to Abraham. Abel's blood, he said, cried to him from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Abel's blood cried out because of his his murder. But Jesus' blood speaks better things. When Jesus hung on the cross to die for our sins and his his blood ran down his body and ran down the cross and soaked into the ground, the ground amplified the voice of Christ from the earth and it's lifted up to heaven and the blood of Jesus cried out, not for, not for judgment, not for demolition, No, no, the blood of Jesus cried out forgiven. The blood of Jesus cried out justified. The blood of Jesus cried out sanctified. The blood of Jesus cried out healed. The blood of Jesus cried out eternal life. The blood of Jesus cried out, you are forgiven, you are restored. Come back to the Father. Thanks be to God. And when the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on you, when you put your faith in Christ, that's why you can come into this Heavenly, holy of holies, and not just today, but forever. You say, well, I don't, how, how do I know if I'm worthy enough to be there? How do you know? Well, well, I'll tell you what, if you think about your own sin, and you think seriously about it, you're right. How could we stand there? How could we stand? How could we stand there? It says, let us with grateful hearts come into his presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Come into his courts with praise. To this one I will look, God says, who is the one who is humble. Why humble? Why grateful? Because you've encountered the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That's what happens. That's what happens. And you become a worshiper. Now listen, I don't know where you think you are this morning on the holiness scale. <laughs> I know I'm way down there. Isaiah, Isaiah, he'd already written five chapters of the Bible. Can I just tell you, that's a pretty high mark. Like, I've never written any of the Bible, (laughs) which you will be glad to know, right? That would be weird. I mean, there, there are people, 
And look, I'd be happy if I'd have just written like a small section, like a little bit that nobody ever read, like Obadiah. Like those parts of the Bible where you, the pages are still stuck together on that new Bible you got, right? And you're like, I don't even know. That. You're going to get to heaven and there's going to be a guy up there with a name tag that says Obadiah. And you're going to meet him and you're going to go, Obadiah, I, I, rings a bell and he's going to go, yeah, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote a book of the Bible. And you're going to go, I always was going to get to that one, but I just never got there. Isaiah had already written five chapters of the Bible. That's, that's some tall cotton. And listen to what he said. In the year that King Uzziah died, you get to chapter six, verse one, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and the angels were all around him, the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I fell down like a dead man. The guy who'd already written five chapters of the Bible, who the Bible says is a holy man because the spirit was using him to write the word of God, to proclaim the word of God, holy men of old. That's who Isaiah was. That holy man, when he was in the presence of God, fell down and he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me. That's what a holy man said. A man who'd already written five chapters of the Bible. When he got into God's presence, he said what? Woe is me. You come into God's presence, thankfully you're not left with woe. Because the next words out of God's mouth to him were this. Lo, this has touched you and cleansed you and your sin is taken away. Friends, we come into God's presence, we're sinful, broken people. How can we stand before a holy God? How are we left there? Why are we not just escorted out? Why don't the angels just look at me and go, the exits are clearly marked. (laughs) How can you stand before this God who is holy and just because this love of God is holy and he forgives you, he applies the blood of Christ to you. And he says to you today, what he said to Isaiah, lo, this has taken away your sin. And that is why friends, there's in our hearts an antiphon of praise that when you know you're standing there, you just say, worthy is the lamb. Jesus, I love you. You have sprinkled me. This is acceptable worship. It's Christocentric. It's the lamb at the center. It's our heart's highest good, our sumum bonum. It's Jesus. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for the blood that you shed that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That when your blood was spilled on the ground, you did not cry out for justice. You said, Father, forgive them. You said it is finished, it is paid in full. You have applied your blood to our lives. Thank you, Lord. How could we stand in your presence if it were not, we could not stand in your presence apart from what Christ has done, he is the mediator. And so we come, and we do come boldly because he has done what he's done. He is our high priest. He does sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our brokenness, and he heals us. And so, Lord, we come and we lift hands, cleansed by the blood. We lift voices, cleansed by the blood. We lift hearts, cleansed by the blood. We lift our lives to you. We offer all that we are and all that we have to you because all of it is cleansed by the blood of Christ, our great Savior and Redeemer. And we say, Jesus, thank you for loving us. Jesus, we love you. Amen.